Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a teaching series called People of Hope, a study in 1 Thessalonians. In this series, we will see that even in trials, the way of Jesus offers us encouragement and hope. Thanks for joining us today. So Google Analytics, if you follow all the trends on social media and the internet, Google Analytics reports in 2020 that the top worldwide searches were TikTok and death. I could make a case those go together, uh, but I won't go there. That's a message for another day. I'm sure it had something to do with COVID being searched so often, but death is a top search every year. And I think there's a few reasons why death is searched so frequently. One, we have an insatiable appetite for the future. We want to know what the future holds. We wonder what life after death is like. Will it be familiar? Will it be totally different? Will we know people? I think a second reason for the popularity of this search is that we have had loved ones die. And we want to know where they are and what they're doing. I know I wonder what heaven is like. And and when we sing songs about Jesus coming back, they are the songs that bring tears to my eyes because I long for that day. I can't wait to see Jesus. I can't wait to see my four children who are with him right now. Two miscarriages, a stillbirth, and one twin that lived for an hour. I long for heaven. The third reason is that many people fear death. Death ranks annually as one of the things we fear the most, death in public speaking. So we search for death so we can gather information to help our fear. And while we won't be able to address all of those things today and all the questions you may have, I pray the verses that we're going to talk about might help you live with a longing for heaven right now, with hope and encouragement rather than fear in light of our future with Jesus. So we're in a series, we've been in a series for the past five or six weeks in the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians called A People of Hope, and we're learning that even in trials, Jesus offers us encouragement and hope. And if you're following in your notes today, we're learning that even in death, Jesus offers us encouragement and hope. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the little New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to start in chapter 4, verse 13. It's about three-fourths of the way back in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have black Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, take that home with you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. But it would be beneficial for you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you, whether hard copy or digital, so that you can follow along where we're going today. You may also notice the notes are two-sided today. Don't worry, we'll be done in three hours tops. Honestly, there's just so much good information and so much encouragement and hope to be found in these verses that I I didn't want us to miss anything. So let me provide some context of where we're going with these verses today. I want to put a map on the screen so you have your bearings. Paul is writing to a new church in the city of Thessalonica. He had visited there about a year earlier. He had only spent a few weeks with these people before he was forced out of town for fear of being killed by a mob. 
And now it's a year later, and he's writing them probably some questions that they had because he wasn't able to share everything that he wanted to share in the short amount of time that he was with them. And here's the, here's the thing for today. They had some questions about those who had already died. In the year that he was gone, some people had died. So Paul is dealing with a fairly narrow question. If you're following in your notes, Paul's main concern is the fate of believers who had died before Jesus returned. What happens to them? That's what he wants to answer because the Thessalonians feared their loved ones who had died would miss out on the coming kingdom of God. They were fearful. So let's look at the encouragement and hope that Paul provides to the Thessalonians and to us. Paul says, beginning in verse 13, would you read this in the first gray box on your notes? It says, now we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope, right? This is a, a new church New believers, they didn't grow up in Christian families. They're first generation Christians and all they know was learned from the Greek culture around them. And the Greek culture was a culture primarily of hopelessness. Historians have said this is a hopeless culture. One of the famous Greek poets named Theocritus wrote this and he penned their philosophy. Hopes are for the living, the dead have no hope. That's what this church is thinking about. So the people in this young church were uninformed. They just didn't know. They were confused. I wonder if they even had some despair and their grief caused them to question whether the good news of Jesus was really good and if Jesus was Lord over all, even death. Paul doesn't want them to be uninformed about those who sleep. If you're following in your notes, the word sleep is a euphemism for death. It's temporary. It's found all over the New Testament. Paul says, do not grieve like those who have no hope. Death is temporary. And let me clarify something. When Paul says, don't grieve, when he, as those who have no hope, he doesn't say don't grieve and puts a period at the end of the sentence. If you're following in your notes, Christian hope does not ignore pain and grief. It's not stoic. It's not just put on your boots and get through it. We grieve at the loss of a loved one for several reasons. One, because death is abnormal. We were not created to die. So death is not a natural part of the human process. Sin tore apart what God had created in Genesis 1 to 2, and now we experience death. It's abnormal. That's why we grieve. We also grieve because God created us for relationship, deep, meaningful relationship. And when we lose a relationship to death, there is intense grief. It's healthy to struggle with grief and pain. Jesus even grieved death. In John 11, Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but we're told he wept and he grieved the loss of a friend. So Christian hope doesn't ignore pain and grief. We grieve with hope. 
We grieve with hope. And I'll say it again, hope is not wishful thinking. We've said that throughout the series. Hope is not wishful thinking. It is assurance in the promises of God. And Paul continues in verse 14 to provide the assurance of why we grieve with hope. Would you read this with me in the second gray box? It says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. We grieve with hope because if you're following in your notes, the foundation of our hope is the death and resurrection of Jesus. What Paul wrote here is believed to be one of the earliest creeds of the church. Jesus died and rose again. Jesus died and rose again. Everything in our faith rises and falls on this statement. Jesus died and rose again. Maybe we could join our voices with the voices of those who've come before us. Can you say that with me again? Jesus died and rose again. One more time. Jesus died and rose again. That is the foundation of our hope. We grieve differently. Because Jesus was resurrected from the dead and scripture provides an amazing promise for followers of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, we read this. Would you read this with me? By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Scripture teaches, if you're following in your notes, because Jesus rose from the dead, his followers will too. His followers will too. And after establishing this assurance of hope, Paul starts to answer the question that is his main point. If you look back at verse 14, it says, after this foundation of hope, it says, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. All right, here we go. To understand this, we've got to talk about for a few moments what happens when we die. What happens when we die? When we die, our bodies are laid to rest. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. And everything that is not physical, our minds, right? Not our brains, but our minds, our awareness, our consciousness, our thinking, our souls, and our spirits, everything that you can't see under a microscope is immediately in the presence of Jesus. Immediately. This happens to everyone, believer and unbeliever. If you're following in your notes, upon death, our bodies sleep and our spirit, you can put soul in there if you want as well, is in the presence of Jesus. I've said this at funerals many times. Our last breath here on earth will be our first breath in the presence of Jesus. And as we stand before Jesus in that moment, in that moment, or more likely we'll fall to our knees in that moment, but at that moment, we will be judged. We'll be judged. If you're following on your notes, we will all face judgment based on our faith in Jesus. Hebrews 9.27 says this. You can see this on the screen. And just as each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. And this judgment depends entirely on our faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The questions that those baptized answered this morning. 
It depends entirely on that. The outcome of this judgment determines whether we go to heaven or whether we go to hell. Randy Alcorn in his book, Heaven, succinctly states, you can read this scripture or this quote on the screen. He says, scripture teaches that those who die will go to a real place, either the present heaven or the present hell as conscious human beings with memory of their lives and relationships on earth. Those in hell will live in misery, hopelessness, and apparent isolation, while those in heaven will live in comfort, joy, and rich relationship with God and others. This place we dwell with Jesus for believers who stand in judgment and are found believing in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. When we die, this place is sometimes called paradise. Jesus referred to that in Luke 23 to the thief on the cross. It's called Abraham's bosom in Luke 16. Sometimes it's just called heaven, and sometimes it's called an intermediate state or an intermediate heaven. Let me say this. It's not purgatory. Purgatory has been taught uh, in the Catholic Church, and some people believe that when we die, we go to a place called purgatory. And it says this, we undergo the process of purification so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. That is not real. That's a false teaching. We do not go to purgatory. We stand before Jesus and we are judged for what we did with him here on earth. So let me say it again. When we die, our bodies sleep, but everything non-material that makes us who we are is immediately in the presence of Jesus and dwelling in this intermediate heaven, the place between death and resurrection. And I want to be clear here because this might be new for so many people. If you're following in your notes, this intermediate heaven is the place between death and resurrection. It's not our final destination. It's not our final destination. It's not what we were made for. We were made, God promises to refashion us and our bodies to live forever, which is heaven on earth. We'll talk about that in a few minutes, but when we die, we're not at our final destination. I love how Bishop N.T. Wright says this. He says the intermediate state is life after death. And if you're following on your notes, he says, our final destination is life after life after death. I love that. Listen, I wish we had time to talk more about what this intermediate state might be like. I'd love to be able to talk about how people waiting in this intermediate state have emotions and longings. They long for Jesus to return. They long to be reunited with us. They long for us to be with them. I'd love to talk about how we may have physical bodies in this intermediate state. Not our final glorified bodies, but we may have bodies. It seems like that according to scripture. I'm hopeful we can come back to this in the future. And if you're interested in this subject, I wanna give you two resources I highly recommend. They're on the back of your notes. You can flip over because we've made our way to the backside of the notes anyway. One is a book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. The other is Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. They've both been tremendously helpful in understanding the death. But after Paul 
says Jesus will bring those who have died with him, right? From this intermediate heaven, Jesus returns, bringing those who have died and are with him, waiting for him to return. He continues to provide more encouragement and hope and what to expect when Jesus returns. Verses 15 to 17 read this way. You can follow in your notes, or I'm sorry, in your Bibles or on the screen. Paul writes, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, We who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. So much to talk about in these verses. So the way we're going to handle this is we're going to look at the order of events according to this passage that occur at the second coming of Jesus. First, if you're following in your notes, Jesus will descend from heaven. He will descend, verse 16, the word coming. He will come down from heaven. It's the word in Greek, it's parousia, and and it means, uh, it can mean coming or appearance, but if you're following in your notes, it primarily, parousia means presence. It means presence, particularly presence after absence. And when we think of the coming of the Lord, yes, we think about his appearance, but we also think of his presence. That's what Paul is getting across here. When Jesus appears, we will be present with him in a way that we are not now. Two, if you're following your notes, everyone will know that Jesus is coming back. Everyone will know. Verse 16 says there will be a shout, a voice of the archangel and a trumpet. Listen, this will not be secret and it will not be silent and no one will miss it. No one will miss it. This is rich in Old Testament imagery when God would gather his people to assemble with a trumpet call. And Paul is making the point that this will be a very public event. If you're willing, would you, you raise your hand if you're embarrassed, you don't have to. Have you ever, ever in your life walked into a room, everybody that was once there is no longer there and the thought went through your mind, did I miss the rapture? Did that, anybody? Yeah, I'm not alone in that. Listen, that's not how the second coming of Jesus is gonna go down. It's not. If you ever wonder whether you'll miss the second coming of Jesus, you don't have to worry anymore. No one in the world's going to miss it. Nobody's going to miss it. Three, the third action to take place when Jesus returns. Those who have died in the Lord will rise first. Verse 16 says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Listen, graves will open And the immortal bodies of believers whose bodies will be conformed to the resurrection body of Jesus, which at the moment is almost unimaginable in its glory and power. The dead will rise with those bodies. And what that means is there's a day coming where I'll be 6'3". I will no longer slice any of my golf shots and I will finally be able to dunk a basketball over Steve Patsia. 
It will be glorious. Listen, the truth is, whatever we want to imagine or we can imagine, the resurrection of our bodies is even better. It's even better. One of the best descriptions of these new bodies is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42 to verse 44. You can read this on the screen. It says, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. That's the promise we have. That's the promise. And this is where Paul is making his main point. What about those who have died before Jesus returns? And he plainly states, here's his answer. They'll be the first people to be made completely whole. They will be the first to experience their spirit united with their glorified bodies. They won't miss out. What encouragement and hope the Thessalonians must have had when they read this. What encouragement and hope we have for our loved ones who have died. And the fourth and final event that takes place in this passage, if you're following in your notes, is the living believers will join the resurrected saints and meet them and the Lord in the air. We read that in verse 17. It says, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. So Jesus comes back bringing with him the people who have already died and been waiting in this intermediate heaven. Their imperishable bodies will rise from the ground and join them in the air. And then those still living will meet Jesus in the air and the resurrected believers. And I don't think Paul just picks the location of the clouds or the air on accident. Clouds in the Bible have a consistent and important imagery that represent, if you're following in your notes, the presence of God. Clouds always represent the presence of God. We see clouds in the Exodus story on Mount Sinai, filling the tabernacle during the wilderness wanderings, at the transfiguration of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, and now the coming back of Jesus. Clouds, presence, God is with us. And the air, why the air? The air was often viewed as the dwelling place of demons. In Ephesians chapter 2, 22, Satan is even called the prince of the power of the air. And in meeting in the air, we are triumphantly meeting Jesus and his followers. If you're following in your notes, in the air indicates complete victory over sin, death, and evil. Complete victory. When Jesus returns, sin, disease, death, evil will be shut out from the new heaven and the new earth. That's why we meet him in the air. We all agree on this. As followers of Jesus, this is what we agree on. Jesus comes back, judgment, resurrection with the Lord. And then we're left with a question. Where do we go after we meet Jesus in the air? 
The passage doesn't address that, although I do believe it provides a major clue. And I want to talk about this for several minutes because I I think a lot of people wonder about it. I, I wonder about it. And as a caveat, as we begin to talk about this for the next couple of minutes, what I'm about to say is of secondary importance in this passage. In addition, I don't believe what we're about to talk about is a double yellow line issue. We can agree to disagree and still be brothers and sisters in Christ. We can go to the same church and we will be together forever in the presence of the Lord. And when Jesus comes back, listen, we are not going to be arguing about how it happened. We'll be with him. And let me also say this. I'm not an expert on this subject by any means. I don't have it all figured out. I'm just looking at what Paul wrote here and trying to study it the best I can. And the confusion about where we go when Jesus returns is over the word rapture. It's over the word rapture, which is actually not in the Bible. The concept of a rapture comes from the words caught up in verse 17. The Greek word, if you're following in your notes, is harpazo, and it's translated as caught up or snatched away. And when the Bible was translated from Greek into Latin, they translated caught up or snatched away as rapio, and that's where we get the term rapture or caught up or snatching away. And most of the time when the word rapture is used, what is meant is that followers of Jesus meet him in the air, And he takes them away somewhere up to heaven until a later time when Jesus comes back again. Now, what we need to know is this idea of rapture is a relatively new idea in the history of the Christian faith. It was developed in 1830 in Scotland by a young woman who worked herself into a self-induced fever or trance-like state. And while in this trance, she had a vision that the church, God's people, was, was pulled out of the world as things were getting bad as the tribulation was beginning. Now, something to note, if something's only been around for 180 years, it doesn't mean it's false. It just means we need to pay attention to why people for 2,000 years didn't believe it. So for 1,800 years, no one had heard of the word rapture or the idea of the church being pulled out of the world. It's also interesting that this is primarily an American teaching. Most believers around the world would not embrace a secret rapture theology and God evacuating his people to escape trials and tribulations. That's why the entire New Testament is about hope and encouragement in the midst of trials and temptations and tribulation. So what I want to do is come back to Paul's text here because he doesn't explicitly say where we go, but I think he gives us a clue with the words he uses. It's the word meet. We will meet the Lord in the air. The word meet is apontasis. I know I'm using a bunch of words today. I'm a word nerd. It was a secular word, and in ancient literature, it referred to citizens of a city, if you're following in your notes, who go out to meet an approaching dignitary and follow them back into the city. It's only used two other places in the entire New Testament, Matthew 25, 6 and Acts 28, 15. And it describes exactly this type of movement of a welcoming party going out to meet a dignitary and bring them back into the city. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, says this. This is not talking about how we are being caught up, especially with all the emphasis on the resurrection and new bodies. 
We're not being caught up and taken out of the world into heaven. We're being caught up with him on his way to earth to make it everything it ought to be. I believe Paul was using language the Thessalonians would have known to describe the coming of Jesus. Thessalonians were used to dignitaries coming to their city, dignitaries like Caesar, and they would go out and up and taste us with them back into the city. And what Paul's communicating with the word meat is that the resurrected dead and the raptured living, the caught up living, will meet Jesus in the air, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, in a final victory and accompany him in glory and honor the rest of the way to earth, culminating in what we read in Revelation 21, 22, of heaven and earth being reunited and made new like it was in Genesis 1 and 2. So whether you agree with what I've just said, or you have a different end times viewpoint, whether you're pre-post or amillennial, I don't want us to miss how Paul finishes verse 17. We will be with the Lord forever. We'll be with him forever. And I love how this section ends in verse 18 because it is polar opposite of how we started in verse 13. Would you read this with me in the third gray box in your notes? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. I love what commentator Mark Howell says. He says, only God could take the deepest of human sorrows and in only six verses, transform them into hope. God's truth can transform ignorance into understanding, grief into joy, and hopelessness into assurance. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I wanna talk about three ways we can find hope and encouragement in the second coming of Jesus. First, if you're following in your notes, be encouraged that our loved ones in Christ who have died are with Jesus. What provides hope and encouragement is there is no possibility. This is Paul's answer to the question. There's no possibility that those who have died in Christ will ever be separated from him. And one day there will be a reunion with Jesus and our loved ones that we can't even begin to imagine how good it will be. Two, be encouraged that one day everything will be made new. We were made for the Garden of Eden where we were created in perfect relationship with God, one another, and the earth. But all of that's been torn apart by sin, and life is full of disappointment. And get, we, we know this, right? We just know this. We're aware of the gap of what we were made for and what we actually experience. We're aware of it. Maybe you struggle that your body is not what you wish it was. Sickness, disease, pain, Maybe you struggle that your mind is not what you wish it was. Mental illness, dementia, Alzheimer's. Maybe your family is not what you wish it was. Maybe your marriage is not what you wish it was. Your job is not what you wish it was. Our city, our state, our nation, our world are not what we wish they were. This is why we grieve with hope because when Jesus returns, the gap between what should be and what will be is closed. It's closed. We grieve with hope that Jesus will one day make everything new and we will live in a world that is finally as it should be. 
And the third thing I want to say to you is be encouraged to live faithful lives now. Live faithful lives now. As, as we said throughout this series, the return of Jesus motivates us to live lives worthy of God. And if we're not careful, what happens is this delay as we wait can lead to complacency. But living in the expectation that Jesus could return today compels us to live every day for what really matters. And that's eternity. Before he left this earth, Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations. Friends, we have a mission. We have been sent in power to be Jesus' witnesses in our families, our neighborhoods, our schools, our city, and our world. We get to join Jesus in his kingdom work now that will last into eternity, the new heaven and the new earth. C.S. Lewis has this beautiful quote. He said, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought most of the next. When Jesus returns, whenever that may be, may he find us living faithfully. And then if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I just wanna to speak to you directly for just a, just a minute. I'm so thankful you're here. You chose a great Sunday to be here, to see people baptized and follow Jesus in new life. And what you saw symbolized the death of Jesus as each individual was buried under the water and rose to new life in Jesus as they came up out of the water. It's a glimpse of resurrection that we talked about today. And so let me say this to you. I pray you find hope and encouragement in the words of Paul. Because the grace of God has appeared in Jesus and everyone has the opportunity to be saved from death. Jesus died to pay the penalty for your sin and rose from the dead to give you eternal life. Jesus offers that gift of grace, forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life to everyone. And so I just wanna ask you directly, whether you're joining us online or you're in the room, I just wanna ask you directly, have you accepted this? Are you ready for the moment that you meet Jesus? Because there is a day coming when you will stand in front of Jesus and you will be judged and your eternity hangs in the balance. Whether you spend eternity in the presence of Jesus or separated from him in hell depends on the decision you make about Jesus now. Today can be the day you acknowledge your inability to save yourself and place your full confidence in Christ. And so if you're sensing, I, I, I'm not ready. I, I wanna be ready. I don't wanna miss out on this. I need to make a decision. Don't miss this opportunity today. You get one chance. Don't miss this opportunity. Find encouragement and hope in the second coming of Jesus. You can experience that today. Let me pray for us as we prepare for communion. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word teaches us what you want us to know. I pray for my brothers and sisters here that they would find encouragement and hope in your life, death, resurrection, and second coming, Jesus. May we find encouragement and hope to live today for that day. And I pray for my friends here who don't yet follow you, Jesus. Would you open their eyes and reveal yourself to them? If this is the day 
where they want to follow you, would you make that clear in their minds and in their spirits? And would they take that bold step to say today, today I wanna begin a new life that doesn't end when I die, but continues on in the presence of Jesus forever. God, thank you that we get the opportunity to gather, to praise you, to sing to you, to open your word, to be taught by you, and then scatter to go live out our faith. We're grateful. We're grateful for who you are and what you've done. It's in Jesus' name everybody agreed and said, amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church or to get connected, please visit cherryhillsfamily.org or find us on Facebook. Thanks for joining us.